0: Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Contemporary thought series, and was recorded at SEMA Director's Conference on Narratives of Legitimacy and the Maghribi State, Power, Law and Comparison, held on June 21, 2019 in Sidi Boucaid Tunisia. In this episode, Dr. Mary Mektad, Simad Assistant Director, interviews Karim Zahur, PhD candidate in political science at Stockholm University, about his paper entitled "No Country for Young Men."
1: I am happy to welcome Karim Zahur. Your chapter is entitled "No Country for Young Men." Why this title?
2: Well, I mean, besides being a callback to a, a really good movie, I think it kind of reflects my ambition to capture the experiences of the young men that I study, right? So this chapter, but also my PhD in general, is looking at young men in interior regions of Tunisia, particularly in Gasserine and Gafsa, where I did fieldwork for about a year. It was extended over three years. So I tended to do like six months fieldwork, two months fieldwork and come back. And in my thesis as a whole, but particularly in this chapter, I really wanted to kind of emphasize young men's own understanding of themselves. And I think this sense of not belonging, this sense of alienation, this sense of frustration is extremely pervasive. And I think there are many aspects to this frustration, and I try to talk about some of them in this chapter.
1: Can you tell us more about how this sense of non-belonging and this sense of alienation actually links to the notion of Khobziz that you also develop?
2: In my thesis as a whole, I try to understand the way that young men experience democratization, their own understanding of the democratization process. And I tie this to their understanding of the state and their relationship and the view of themselves as citizens. And in this chapter, I look at the way that young men talk about themselves and about Tunisian society in general, And one of the ways in which I try to capture these narratives and these stories is through something that might be called cultural intimacies, which is something that the anthropologist Michael Hertzfeld, that's a term that he uses, and there he uses it to capture what he calls self-stereotypes of people. And he puts these self-stereotypes in connection to nation-state myths. And so I sort of follow that logic a little bit, And I'm interested in narratives of themselves in relationship to nation-state myths. And one of the sort of nation-state myths of Tunisia, certainly during Ben Ali, but going back even to Bourguiba, is this notion of Tunisia as a kind of middle-class society, a society which is more, let's say, modern, more developed than its Arab neighbors, and that has reached a level of education and economic success which distinguishes it from other regional countries. Now, there's certainly some truth to this claim, but the term khoubzist, which is a term that many young Tunisians use to talk about themselves, signals that there's something wrong or incomplete with that idea of what Tunisia is and who Tunisians are. And I'm not the only one who has discussed the term khubzist. Um, Lots of Tunisian scholars and non-Tunisian scholars have discussed the term. And the word obviously comes from the Arabic word for khubz bread, conjugated in a sort of French manner, and is usually understood to connote something like a pragmatic approach or someone who lacks morals to do who, a person who does anything he can to survive, a person who lives hand-to-mouth. And someone like Hamza Madab writes a lot about this term in his thesis, um, and he talks about the race for the khubs, the race for the bread, and he sees it as a kind of governmentality of Tunisia in the margins. And I think it's an interesting and complex term because it's both used as a kind of self-critique, or a critique of Tunisians. We only think about today. We don't think about the future. We do everything to survive. But it can also be almost a point of pride. I am a Khoubzist. I don't care about politics. I don't care about the future. But I also think inherent in the concept, among other things, is a critique of this notion of middle-class Tunisia, right? It's saying that certainly in these areas, we're not middle-class. We're living hand-to-mouth We're doing everything we can to survive.
1: So you're talking a lot about this sense of self-critique and self-reflection. Through your interviews, do these young men develop some meaning from this self-critique? Are they aware that they are falling into this kind of self-stereotyping?
2: I think so. I think there's a strong element of performance in this. I think it's an articulation of a description of the way things are, but there's also a critique of the current order. There's a sometimes implicit, sometimes explicit anger and critique that we're reduced to this state of khubzist. And so I think a lot of these everyday narratives are directed both at the sort of official state narrative of how things are, but it's also a critique of society in general, and sometimes of themselves.
1: And in your presentation, you talked a lot about nostalgia and precisely about the nostalgia for the certainty of the autocratic order. What can you make of this observation if you correlate it with what you've just said about the critique of the relationship to the state? Does this make sense to you?
2: That's a good question. I think that there is a widespread sense, and I speak about this in my other chapters, that the democratization transition has brought radical change, sometimes good, often bad. And one of those changes is the way that uncertainty has become more of a lived or experienced aspect of everyday life. And I think this is a complex process and it's articulated in complex ways. And I try and navigate it and approach it through a variety of perspectives, I think that one of the consequences of the democratization process is that it has opened up a space for debate and discussion, both in an everyday sense, that people can now speak more openly in cafes, among friends, among family, but also in social media and in television and in newspapers, and I think that one of the effects of this opening up of these public spaces has been a development of certain kinds of social narratives that may that people knew about before, ideas that people knew about before, but that they had to be very careful about articulating. And they might have whispered, they might have insinuated, they might have articulated in symbolic ways, but they could rarely pose or express clearly and publicly. And, you know, this is obviously something positive in a general sense, but I think it also has a set of consequences. And one of that is that when people today speak about things like corruption, when they speak about democracy, when they speak about all the problems that's facing Tunisian society, it's sometimes hard to make the distinction between what was there before and what is there simply because you can speak it. And I think even if people know that a lot of these problems that they now articulate were present before, the fact that it's more visible makes it more palpable and makes it more part of their lived experience and it becomes a kind of social narrative of its own. And so there is this narrative of crisis of instability, of insecurity. And some of it is certainly tied to economic inflation. Prices have gone up for a lot of basic goods. There are problems when it comes to security. There has been a number of terrorist attacks. The Libyan border is very insecure. There are problems in the Algerian border too. But I think part of it is also the way that you can speak about it now in a more open way amplifies that sense of insecurity. And I think, and this is what I try and write in some of my chapters, I think that this is part of the democratization process. I think that opening up these public spaces enables people to talk about themselves and society in new ways, but it also has the effect of creating this sense of uncertainty. And so I don't think it's strange that there is a certain kind of nostalgia for not necessarily Ben Ali, but for a kind of sense of stability and security, which is both real and imagined in a more authoritarian context, where what you can say and what you can hear and what you can see about society is to some extent more limited. And so I see a lot of these discussions as opening up a space for looking at yourself and looking at society in new ways. And oftentimes you might not like what you see. And I think a lot of people are aware of the price that you pay for this sort of opening up of public space and are willing to pay it and see it as what I call a sort of enlightenment narrative that to know yourself and to develop, you need to be open about yourself. And so the way that they talk about themselves now is a kind of stepping stone in developing themselves and their country and society. But I think the flip side of that is also the sense of nostalgia for a more secure past and future in a way. And I should say, I don't think this is unique to Tunisian societies. I think we're seeing the same kind of nostalgia for this certainty in a lot of Western societies, too, and a lot of so-called consolidated, stable democracies. And I think there's a lot of aspects in that. I mean, part of it, I think, is inherent in democracy itself. Democracy, like Claude Lefort says, entails a certain kind of uncertainty. But I think that's been amplified by things like what scholars call neoliberalism, a sense of economic insecurity, a widening gap between those who have and those who have not, a large set of the population who are outside of the sort of circulation of capital, but also don't have access to stable jobs. All of that amplifies it. I also think that the sort of expansion of social media and the lack of centralized control over information, which again, I mean, it's not just part of the democratization process in Tunisia. It's something that's happened In the West as well, we have more sources of information now. And sometimes those sources amplify our sense of insecurity.
1: So you also develop a concept of waiting. And it is actually the basis of your work. It is actually the main concept on which you build your argument. Could you tell us more about this concept, waiting uh, waiting for what?
2: Right. So the concept of waiting is commonly used when you talk about youth, and, you know, my thesis wasn't originally supposed to be about youth or young men. I set out to work on decentralization and to interview mayors in southern and interior interior Tunisia, but sort of while I was waiting to find the right contacts to interview these mayors, I was hanging out with a lot of young men who I stumbled upon. And I spent time with them in their cafes and sometimes in bars, too. And it was only when I came back to Sweden after three months that I thought that there's something interesting there and that I already have now a lot of this interesting information that it could be good to go back and try and explore the everyday lives of young men and how that is tied to democratization and the state. And because, you know, I was waiting and I was waiting with them in very different ways, waiting for very different things. It seemed like a, a good starting point to try and understand everyday lives of, of young men, which certainly is defined by waiting and wait in a lot of ways. It's waiting for a job, oftentimes state employment secure employment it's waiting for adulthood the ability to get married have a family buy a house buy a car waiting which is becoming more and more difficult for young people not just in Tunisia but across the non-western and western world and by waiting I don't mean that this is just a kind of passive population that they they're only passively waiting for whether it's the state or whether it's society or whether it's international organizations or civil society to do something. These are often very active young men. They work in small jobs, some of it legal, some of it illegal. They try and build some kind of capital to continue perhaps education or training or buy a small shop or buy a car. They go out and demonstrate... And so this waiting is not passive, but it's still an aspect of everyday life. And so I try to explore what happens through this process of, of waiting.
1: My last question maybe would be about your methodology. What is a young man first? And how do you approach this kind of population you're trying to work with? How do you... You no, know, develop these questions about, you know, very intimate questions, about self-reflection, self-critique. How do you do that?
2: As a sort of supposedly, as a political scientist, this kind of in-depth ethnographic fieldwork and strongly interpretive approach isn't necessarily the norm. And to be honest, it is something that I stumbled upon. Like I said, I had a different set of expectations going in and what I was supposed to do. And I was trying to formulate a clear set of hypotheses and research questions. But the more time I spent in the field, the more obvious it became to me that these weren't necessarily the right questions to ask. And I didn't necessarily have the right tools to investigate what was going on. And so it was very much a learning process for me, and it was moving much more towards this open-ended, interpretive, ethnographic approach, where a lot of the questions that I asked and a lot of the concepts that I tried to use, including waiting and the sort of experience of the state and democratization, grew out of these everyday encounters with these young men. And it's a kind of attempt to reflect or to build up my questions and my interests in a way that it ties to their experiences. Now, of course, there's always a gap between the way that academics formulate these questions and the theories, but it's an attempt to make a more sort of grounded approach, if you want to call it that. And it entails a constant back and forth between you and your interlocutors, you and your questions, you and your theory, and you're constantly reformulating the way you think. And I think the good thing about ethnography, and I think it's also, I've been fortunate enough to be able to go back many times to the field, is that you know you can talk about your interpretations. You can ask your interlocutors and oftentimes people that become your friends, what do they think about this idea of or what do they think about this idea of self-critique, or what do they think about this theory of the state as I try and understand it. And I think that's something that's often lacking in political science and something that we can learn from anthropologists and others who have used ethnographic methods for a long time.
0: Thank you for listening to Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagribpodcast.com as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the Semat newsletter at www.simatmaghrib.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghrib Studies. See you soon for a new episode.